Telehell presents Countdowns of the Damned. I think it's only fair that we begin with the wise words of one Elizabeth Mervaldus Lemon, as portrayed by one Elizabeth Stementina Fay. Yes, that's her real name. Valentine's Day is a sham created by card companies to reinforce and exploit gender stereotypes. Happy Anna Howard Shaw Day to you, Evelyn. Come on. A happy Anna Howard Shaw Day to us all! And I concur. Look, I know this episode drops two days after the fact, and some of you might be expecting a big President's Day extravaganza of some kind, but just to put the nail in the coffin ahead of time for next year, Valentine's Day has never been one of my favorite holidays. Not just for the reasons Liz Lemon just stated, but also because I've been in the school that if you love someone, you really shouldn't limit things to just one day of the year. To make matters worse, the day takes place in the dead of winter, where all the warm feelings in the world won't save you from frostbite. But before you think to yourselves that I'm a bitter fool who doesn't know what love is, let me stop you right there. I do believe that love exists. What I don't believe in, however, is manufactured love. The kind that they have in greeting cards, heart-shaped boxes of candy, flowers that will turn into potpourri in a few weeks, TV movies where one person takes two hours to decide between an obvious jerk and an obvious good guy. And perhaps the greatest weapon against true love about 99.9999999999% of the time. Dating shows. What I'm about to say is extremely crazy. What would you say if I, I asked you to come be part of the house? Oh my God. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that every single dating, relationship, or even a hookup show out there fails to comprehend what the overall concept of love is, but a lot of them do. And we're going to look back at what some of us consider the worst offenders of the genre as we present the top eight worst dating or relationship shows that we've ever seen today in Telehell. It's been a little while since we've done a list episode, so before we actually get to the subject, let's go over some ground rules. Number one, this list, like any and all other lists that will follow it, will never be written in stone, nor is it going to be definitive. For the time being, this is simply stuff that we're thinking of at the top of our collective heads. At the same time, this list is highly subjective, hence the title, Worst Shows We've Ever Seen. If a favorite show you love to hate isn't on here, more than likely it's because we haven't seen it yet. If we forget to mention anything here, there's always the future. Or you could let us know about it on our various social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. And we may get to do an audience choice list someday. Speaking of lists, the rules in our top six things we won't review will apply here. That means for this list, we'll cover no shows that are either currently on the air, guilty pleasures, anything localized to a single city, state, or region, or anything that we don't have access to, even a fraction of a second of footage. So for those of you expecting the likes of The Bachelor, Temptation Island, Love Island, or anything else that's on the air right now, you're out of luck for this list. And since we're already making a list of things, this is one of those occasions where we give our nine circles a rest for the week. We may be in the underworld, but there's no sense in being redundant. And besides, every single one of these shows have something to do with lust anyway. Also, about half of these entries are going to wind up being rip-offs of other shows, making it an easy mark for fraud. 
And because the shows in question tried to capitalize on certain trends of their day in an effort for their respective networks to become ever profitable, we'll throw in greed, too. So at the very least, this list will meet our minimum requirements for the week, with an automatic three out of nine circles. As for this list, although reality TV has become dominant over the years, we want to keep this as broad as possible. So in this case, we will allow dating shows, relationship shows, competitions, and even game shows of the more formal definition where people win cash and prizes, while the concept of love applies in even the most vague sense. More skeevy shows like, say, Cheaters and other shows where people are caught in the act with someone else, they are so not going to count. And now that we got that out of the way... Let's go breaking some hearts. Number eight. One of the biggest trends of early 2000s TV, especially in syndication, was the rebirth of dating shows, thanks in no small measure to shows that were on in prime time at the same time. One of the all-time greatest dating shows that defined its decade was a little program called Blind Date. This was a show that, unlike certain predecessors like The Dating Game and Love Connection, actually allowed the viewers to see what was happening on people's respective dates, despite the fact that there are cameras everywhere to film it. Throw in a few snappy graphics that narrate the story without the aid of in-studio host Roger Lodge, and you've got something that was pretty unique for its day. Unfortunately, one of the byproducts of anything ever being successful, especially the kind of success that comes out of nowhere, is that TV producers are never too eager to see if the formula works in other circumstances. Which begs the question, what's worse than being on a bad date? How about being on a bad date in the middle of a cruise where the only way you can make your escape is either by lifeboat, jumping overboard, or contracting the coronavirus? Yes, this is Shipmates, where two people have a first date that lasts for three days. Beat that other dating shows, and it's on the ocean. Number eight on the list is Shipmates. Shipmates fails because of the reasons I just mentioned. It's a blind date on a cruise ship, which may sound fun and exciting on paper, but what if the date goes badly? Horribly badly. So bad that you almost wish for the cruise ship that you're on to capsize, even if it means causing collateral damage with innocent civilians. Unfortunately, as is the case with most of these shows, yes, there are a few good dates to be had, but TV producers know what sells. In all the episodes of the show I was able to track down on YouTube, it seems as though most of the dates in question ended poorly. Here now is just a small sample of microaggressions. Yeah, but why won't you give me a kiss? You'll sit here and let me rub my body, but you won't sit here and kiss me? What are you, a hooker? Oh, why on earth are you so aloof? What are you talking about? I'm just, it's like morning, we're having a day together. Why are you being a jerk? Fun, I'm not being a jerk. Nova Scotia is going to hear Tina today. You wasn't no man, because if you was a man, you would have bought the first round of drinks and of course, let's not forget the most infamous couple they ever featured on the show, which I'm only going to play this one piece of because the rest of the episode is worth seeking out on your own time. And you're probably dying to know how they reach this particular point. I think that you're a real ass. You're cocky, arrogant, stuck-up son of a bitch, and I can't stand you. You're also lucky that your head is so high and that couldn't reach you, because you probably would have went home with a busted lip and a fat eye. To Clarissa, oink bitch. Well chosen words, my friends. 
You are indeed wordsmiths. If these couples were landlocked, at least they could easily call out the date within minutes and hail a cab somewhere. Putting the dates on a ship, especially ones that you know were going to suck, made us all feel seasick for two seasons in syndication. Which is also why the show is at the bottom of this list, because out of the remaining entries, this one, shockingly, has lasted the longest out of all of them. Quite honestly, the iceberg couldn't hit the ship soon enough. Iceberg, run ahead! Thank you. Now, before everybody listening goes nuts over this next one, I just want to assure you that we are not including any guilty pleasures. Especially shows that, much to my surprise, I actually enjoyed watching when they first aired years ago. And I'm not ashamed to admit that when it did first air, I saw the ever-loving shit out of the original Joe Millionaire on Fox. Will love or money prevail? This is the story of Joe Millionaire. And why not? Despite the fact that people were quick to call this a ripoff of the then-new Bachelor on ABC, which, let's face it, it kind of was, the concept behind the show was still deviously entertaining. A gaggle of gals pine for the affection of a man who they think is a multi-millionaire, when in reality he's nothing more than a construction worker making less than $20,000 a year. Drama ensued, twists were turned, and there was even a butler there for comic relief, and people flocked to their screens to see if women would fall for a man just because he may or may not be rich, delivering some of the biggest ratings that the Fox network would ever see that didn't come from a sporting event. So naturally, there had to be a sequel to such a hit, but not without one slight problem. Considering just how many millions of people saw the first season of the show, just exactly what was their plan to ensure that lightning would strike twice? Short answer, they didn't. Long answer, let's just set up our next show with people who could barely speak English in the hopes that they won't catch on. I don't have $80 million. Number seven on this list is season two of Joe Millionaire, which may go down in history as possibly one of the most unnecessary sequels ever made in any medium. And that includes National Treasure 2 and or the T's third one that may be coming soon. But I digress. As we said, in an effort to make sure that the wool would be successfully pulled over people's eyes a second time, the Fox Network and the producers of the show decided to move things over across the pond. Not only filming season two of the show in Europe, but also bringing on women from all over that continent for a shot at pseudo-wealth. As for the Joe they cast this time around, it wasn't a charismatic construction worker like the original Evan Marriott was, but rather a rodeo cowboy from rural Texas who not only made $11,000 a year, but someone who, back when he had hair, could easily be mistaken for Woody Harrelson's stunt double in more ways than one. A man named David Smith, whose aw-shuckish mannerisms might have been the key reason why nobody tuned in to this version of the show. I haven't been completely honest with you. These jewels... And everything that you get, and I see, like, how happy you are, I can't give that to you. I swear, at one point I was expecting him to tell us stories about what life was like living in Hanover, Indiana. Howdy, I'm Woody Boyd from Hanover, Indiana. That's the placemat capital of the world. My mother's name's Margaret, and my father's name's Edgel. My favorite color's blue, and I saved all my baby teeth. How about you? 
Between Smith and the fact that you could barely understand what 80% of the women were saying without the aid of subtitles. You can see why this one is on the list as well as why, at its worst, the show was able to garner north of 5 million viewers when the original pulled in nearly 35 million for its first season finale. But because the original was just so captivating, I had to put this one low on the list by principle. Because if things were done just slightly differently, this show could still be running on the air today as a suitable alternative to The Bachelor. And of course, I'd also be lying if I didn't mention the one true saving grace of both series, The Butler, who by sheer coincidence was an Australian man named Paul Hogan and did not play Crocodile Dundee. Up until now, our hero has been a fish out of water in Europe. But tonight, it will be the young lady's turn. David whisks them away to a magnificent horse ranch in Tuscany, where they will get a taste of his life back home. Like shoveling horse manure, for example. Which of them will pitch in, so to speak? And which of them will turn up their noses at David's cowboy lifestyle? Let's find out, shall we? The Associated Press declared that the show had, quote, gone from one of TV's most surprising successes to the new season's most spectacular flame-out. While former Fox Entertainment chairman Sandy Grushhouse said, quote, we tried to sneak it by the American public a second time, and we got called out on it. Lucky for us, we already rung that bell of fraud. Number six. There's a number of variations on an old saying that once you get married, the wedding rings act as the world's tiniest handcuffs. Thankfully for this pick, the institution of marriage isn't involved, but the size of the cuffs would grow so that they would actually fit over the wrists. This April, UPN will chain five single people together for four days. It's kind of sexy, actually. Real people. What did I get myself into? Real romance. I care about you. I do. Real choices. There's relationships blossoming. Chains of love. Get attached Tuesday, April 17th on UPN. At number six, Chains of Love circa 2001, which aired on the network formerly known as UPN, feels about 50 shades of wrong. And yet, it aired anyway. Six episodes to be exact, before people realized they were watching a show on UPN by mistake. Because, let's face it, with the exception of various Star Trek series and Moesha, Nobody watched UPN. Chains of Love, Tuesday at 8, only on UPN 9. At least, not that I know of, because more often than not, the network was seen by an average of 15 people a night over its 10-year history. But again, I digress. What makes this show particularly insulting is that three similar shows came out the same year and had almost identical formats that wound up running circles around this show only without the use of cuffs and shackles. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The premise, if you can call it that, is simple. One person simultaneously goes out with four potential suitors of the opposite sex. The catch? Well, several of them, actually. Each of the people involved are shackled up over a four-day period to each other through a series of chains and handcuffs. 24 hours a day. Over those four days, the solo dater then has to narrow down who they want to keep dating by paying those who are cut loose a share of a $10,000 prize fund that the solo dater is carrying around. This process repeats until, ultimately, there's one person left on the chain, after which the final decision is made. Stay with the last person standing and split whatever money is left over, 
or tell whoever's left to piss off and keep the remaining money for themselves. In this episode, a woman begins hooked to four men but will end with only one. There is no way to escape. 24 hours a day, everywhere they go, everything they do, they will be linked together. God, this is too much! Now, let me say all of this again. People are chained together and date together for the chance to not only keep on dating, but pocket some coin in the process. There are problems with this. First, the overall concept. Getting chained 24 hours a day to a group of strangers may seem like a BDSM's dream come true, but when it comes to five strangers trying to get to know each other, it's probably no wonder that all the real broadcast networks passed on this show and UPN was desperate enough to take it on. Second, there's a lot of probable cause when it comes to who's chained to whom. To say nothing of the fact that because these people are chained 24-7 and have to do everything together, it makes for some anxiety-inducing awkwardness in certain situations. Witness the anger. Well, get off the damn thing! The honesty. Is sex your main interest in me? No. Oh my god! The competition. And the connection. What if somebody has to go to the bathroom? Do they all have to go? What about if the solo dater is really into one person while the other people chained to them? They have to watch. And above all else... Why are they chained in the first place? Seriously, you can do a dating show about going out with multiple partners and you don't need such a harsh gimmick. Circling back to what I said about how this show inspired a few copycats, well, it turns out the copycats were far superior. As later on in the fall of 2001, we got shows like Eliminate and The Fifth Wheel in syndication and MTV's Dismissed, three practically identical shows that have managed to have a longer shelf life than Chains of Friggin' Love. And for good reason. They don't have chains on them! But, to be fair, this show inadvertently inspired far better Xerox copies, and that's probably the only reason why this show doesn't rank higher on the list. Moving on. Number 5 Joe Millionaire's second season tried to duplicate its formula by having contestants who were vying for affection be from parts of the world who probably didn't have any access to any form of media. On purpose. Because hard as it is to believe back then, there were sections of Europe that were still minus a decent TV signal or a Wi-Fi frequency. Hell, this was, I think, 2003 when that show came on, so they were probably still using dial-up or just discovering it for the first time. So in that regard, I can see why they thought that particular gambit would have worked in the right circumstances. On the inverse of that, however, there are also shows where people hail from this country, the United States, who have access to information 24 hours a day, 7 days a week thanks to their various smart devices, and yet they will still wind up completely clueless about the world around them. Insert political figure here. And when you gather future Darwin Award-winning specimens like them and try to trick them into thinking they're pining for the attention of blue-blooded royalty, the alarm bells should have went off right away. Twelve American girls searching for love have moved into an English castle to meet an ordinary guy who is pretending to be a prince. Welcome to the fairy tale. Number five on the list is credence to the notion that some people will believe 
anything they're told in the form of Fox's 2014 disaster piece, I Want to Marry Harry, with Harry in quotation marks because, as we'll find out, the person that a bunch of 20-something lost souls are trying to latch their claws onto is not the future Duke Emeritus of Sussex, but rather a seemingly uncanny lookalike played by one Mr. Matthew Hicks, a young Brit who, give or take a few cosmetic differences, kinda, sorta, almost looks like the soon-to-be former Prince Harry of Wales. Slap on some red hair dye, add a little scruff, and hopefully the 12 contestants involved in this potential international incident will be none the wiser that the crown jewels that they'll be gunning for will be pure zirconia. This was the first moment in which I got to meet the 12 lovely ladies. I was very nervous, actually. One woman's scary enough to put 12 in front, and it's just absolutely terrifying. Even for 2014, when this aired, this not only felt like a show that Fox would have put on 10 years ago, oh wait. This is the story of Joe Millionaire. But in the few clips that I watched, this felt like a special kind of insulting on a number of fronts. It insulted the contestants' intelligence and probably set back feminism about 50 years thanks to just how naive they were for falling for the stunt. But more importantly, it insulted the viewers' intelligence by tricking them into watching yet another show that involved needless trickery. Because as we all know, trickery is a foundation of love, right? We pull up to this castle. I down Navi. <laughs> There's butlers and maids standing there to greet you with English accents. It was the cutest thing ever. I wonder when we're meeting Prince Charming. I know. Right? American girls are very forward. You've got a naughty little smile. I don't know if the queen would approve. <laughs> and on that note, we have reached the halfway point on this list of love to loathe. We'll share the other half with you. After the break. Fox Wednesday, the original cast of Temptation Island reunites and leave it to them to blow your mind. When one of the couples ties the knot in a ceremony like no other, you're invited to Temptation Island, the wedding. Then, the first time they took you to the edge of temptation. But this time... We're very, very nervous about going. They'll take you beyond... It's over with. Oh, my God. The premiere of Temptation 2, following the Temptation Island wedding. It all starts at 8, 7 Central, Fox Wednesday. The critics agree. It's time to shift your Thursday night viewing habits. First, catch a breakout new season of Family Guy. I'll have three cheeseburgers. For God's sake, she's having a baby. Oh, that's right. And a kid's meal. Then, fear not, America. The tick is here. Catch the series Time Magazine calls. Spray milk out your nose funny. Superhero and a sidekick. Be a well-oiled machine. <laughs> it all starts at 8, 7 Central, Fox Thursday. I reject this next one on principle. Not only because it's yet another ripoff, but also the fact that it's a ripoff of a completely different show, format, and genre entirely. Anybody who watches TV on Monday nights should know what The Voice is, a show that played David to the Goliath that was the original American Idol before it moved to ABC after Fox canceled it. The reason why that show is a success is because it took Idol's formula and fine-tuned it in such a way where the show, although still similar in some regards, would turn out to be vastly different and a viable alternative to what was considered conventional norms. So, what happens when you take the success of The Voice and stick it in a Jeff Goldblum-invented telepod with the DNA of a dating show? 
Aside from chaos theory, you get the Brundlefly that is our pick. Tonight, these four chairs will be filled by some of the most eligible celebrity bachelors in America, and they will each pick one lucky woman to take out on a dream date. But they'll have to choose using only the sound of her voice. Welcome to The Choice. Let's not mince words here. The Choice was The Voice. Only without the music or the charm or even the star status. As each week, for the very few weeks that this aired, a foursome of Hollywood has-beens try to score a date with an unsuspecting contestant. The catch, and stop me if you've heard this one, they can only hear the voice of the potential date sight unseen. And once they like what they hear, the faux famous stars then push a button that allows their specially designed swivel chair to turn around to greet their potential suitor. Gentlemen, you are about to meet lots of beautiful single women, and each of you gets to pick three for your dating pool. With your chairs facing away, each woman will have just 30 seconds to tell you why she would be the perfect date. If she convinces you before time's up, you pull your <clears throat> love hand off. And that's all I really need to say about this. Not only did this rip off a show that was already enjoying success without the use of dating. They took a talent show and turned it into a show about dating. What more do you need? Hey, y'all, I'm from North Carolina. I love hanging out with my 96-year-old grandma. I'm cute, I'm sweet, I'm innocent. Um, you gonna do that? You know, I'm a cutie with a booty. Huh? I'm a cutie with a capital Q. <laughs> Jeremy? Jeremy? Also, the fact that people are trying to score a date sight unseen. Now that I'm saying that out loud, it's kind of reminding me of another show where nobody sees who they're being set up with until all is said and done. But I'm kind of blanking on the title of it. Nah, that just might be a coincidence. But while we're on the subject of Chucky Baby... Our number three pick is a show called Three's a Crowd. No, 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 no. Not the Three's Company spin-off of the same name. That one I actually kind of enjoyed. No, no. This was a game show created by the legendary Chuck Barris. From the Chuck Barris stages in Hollywood, California, it's Three's a Crowd. A game that determines who knows the husband best, his wife or his secretary. Now let's meet the husband. It seems bizarrely fitting that this 70s trash TV classic takes the number three position. And for good reason, too. As the announcer stated in the show's open, if you could hear him over all that applause, was that this was a game that determined which person knows a man best, his wife or his secretary. And I cannot stress enough that this was the late 1970s when it seemed as though the sexual revolution of the 1960s was making a comeback, thanks in small part to tight jeans and feathered hair. Supposedly, this was an idea that Barris had in his head for many years. But for whatever reason, TV networks and syndicators alike were a little too squeamish to pick up the game, which is also for good reason. The concept was not only a mutant cannibalization of Barris's existing newlywed game format, where partners had to match each other's answers, but by adding a third wheel into the mix who was possibly privy to one's personal information, the fighting that would happen when one threesome didn't match an answer seemed slightly more intense than the show that talked about making Whoopi. How long has it been since your boss 
made Whoopi with a woman other than his wife? I think I'll say two months. Two months. Two months? Okay. Paul told us it was 13 years. <laughs> Every time he goes to San Francisco, I get a report on the hookers. Gameplay would go on for a couple more rounds, and a lot more slap fighting would wind up happening. That winning team would split $1,000, which even for 1970s money was really not that much, especially with inflation. But aside from the fact that there was enough slap fighting on this show to make Jerry Springer jealous sometimes, the thing that makes this one rank as high as it is, is a little something called backlash. I'm not talking about viewers simply turning off the show. Quite the contrary. The show was actually a hit because of the constant infighting. But rather, the fact that two major unions, one labor and one political, raised the loudest complaints, particularly the United Auto Workers of America, whose women's committee single-handedly got the show to go off the air in the city of Detroit. No! No, not Detroit! No! No, please! Anything with that! The other union involved was the National Organization of Women, who was able to get the show off the air everywhere else, and leave a black eye in the psyche of Chuck Barris. So much so that he kept out of the public eye for quite some time, proving once and for all, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Number two. Hard as it is to believe, but we've gone seven episodes without talking about our deputy patron saint, Mike Darnell. Until now. For those who missed our episode about The Moment of Truth, aka the lie detector game show that ruined lives for fun and profit, we mentioned Darnell as our DPS because, not unlike our original patron saint Fred Silverman, may he program a lineup in peace, Darnell pretty much carried the same attributes as Silverman but for a 21st century crowd. And also, not unlike Silverman, Darnell has had just about as much success as he did failure. And to continuously do so for the same network for over 20 years and counting is nothing short of amazing. But just because somebody has had a seemingly endless supply of job security doesn't necessarily mean that he or she will pump out a quality product 100% of the time. You're bound to make a mistake or two. This show takes the dating game's original concept of setting somebody up on a blind date and completely cuts out the middleman by completely eliminating the need for a meaningful relationship and skip right to the altar. From Los Angeles, the most controversial relationship experiment ever tried on television. You put two people together, and they commit to marriage, sight unseen. Can arranged marriages work? Welcome to Married by America. Number two on the list is something fitting of a different kind of number two entirely. 2003's Married by America was a show where five single people agreed to be paired up sight unseen with strangers chosen by America. Just backstage are 25 suitors hoping to marry them, which is why we have our singles family and friends here with us tonight. They're going to help us narrow down the field by getting rid of those in the group who they don't think are marriage material. Then, it's up to you, America, literally. We're going to open up our phone lines, and you, the viewers, will play the ultimate matchmaker. In the end, America, you will decide which couple's marriage will last. And with that decision, you'll award them the wedding gift of a lifetime, a luxury car, $100,000 in the bank. And if they stay married, we'll buy them a house. The five newly minted couples met and got engaged on the spot. And so I'm asking you now, to come away on an adventure with me and see where this road will lead us. 
And in doing so, I promise that I will be with open arms, open heart, and open mind throughout the entire journey. And so, with this ring, and all that it symbolizes, I would be greatly honored if you'd join me in marriage, and Billie Jean, will you marry me? Two couples eventually made it to the altar, and the only reason why this show doesn't get the top position on this list is that the people who participated in the show's finale eventually grew enough common sense to realize they didn't want to marry someone that they practically just met. This led to a number of choice moments that I wish I could play for you, but unfortunately I can't due to there not being enough footage to play. Be glad I found what I found in order for this to be eligible. However, I do recall on the finale that, at the point of one of the couples breaking things off, there being an epic meltdown that most reality shows have often imitated, and with some exceptions, never successfully duplicated. And if anybody on the internet, especially in the game show community, has access to what I'm talking about, drop me a line at our social feeds at Telehell Podcast, because my schadenfreude sense is tingling. But despite that moment of misery, the show itself is nothing compared to the aftermath it faced during its run and also thanks to one particular episode. As it turns out, one of the Fox affiliates flat out refused to air the show, partly because the management of the station felt that it was an insult to the sanctity of marriage. Did we mention that this affiliate was based in Raleigh, North Carolina? But the biggest whopper the show wound up facing was when in 2004, just a few months after the wardrobe malfunction seen around the world happened, Word. the FCC, fresh off its warpath in an effort to fight indecency, fined the Fox Network $1.2 million because the penultimate episode of the series focused on the couple's bachelor and bachelorette parties, including scenes with pixelated strippers and even a scene where a woman is licking whipped cream off a man's nipple. The fine was later dropped to a little over $90,000 years later when it was revealed that the dozens of complaints that were made about the episode were actually made multiple times by three people all three of whom probably said to themselves, oh, Won't somebody please think of the children? But despite all of that, the show, the concept, the viewer complaints, all of it, there is still one show in all of television history that was not only an insult to the concept of love, or even the concept of entertainment, but just the mere mention of this show's name is enough to seal yourself into a drum of bleach in an effort to become clean again. And somehow, not even that would be possible. Let's begin with an innocent game show that took the world by storm in 1999. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on ABC was probably the textbook case of lightning in a bottle that other TV executives dreamed of at the start of the 21st century. To harness my inner Stefan from SNL, this show had everything. High stakes, dramatic music cues, dark moody lighting, contestants you could root for, Regis Philbin's career renaissance. Of course, it's because of this show and its massive success that all the rival networks were not too eager to come up with their own carbon copies to multi-million dollar dreams, many of which were born, tried, and died. 
Even Fox got in on the act with a few quiz shows. Some good. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Greed. Others, not so much. And now, America, it's your chance of a lifetime. At the same time, the Fox network also realized that maybe it shouldn't do exactly the same thing as other networks. After all, this is the network that dared to be different before everybody else did. Enter our deputy patron saint once again. According to David Hofstadt's book, What Were They Thinking? The 100 Dumbest Moments in TV History, Darnell was quoted to saying about Regis Philbin's comeback vehicle, quote, Part of the reason it was so successful was wish fulfillment. He then went on to say, What else do people wish for? They wish for a relationship. They wish to get married. How could I combine the two? Fox presents the most outrageous pageant ever. 50 women will compete to marry a mystery multimillionaire. She won't meet him till they say, I do. A two-hour event ending in a legal marriage on TV. Who wants to marry a multimillionaire? Tuesday at 8 on Fox. There was never really going to be any other show to fit into this position. Fox's Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire aired exactly one time plus one rebroadcast in February of 2000. The idea of the show, not unlike Married by America, was that strangers competed for the opportunity to get hitched to someone sight unseen. Unlike the other show, where, to its credit, people actually had the chance to know each other first, Multimillionaire promised to have the two of them hitched live before the 10 o'clock news after only meeting each other for several minutes, an idea that I'm certain the mail-order bride industry would scoff at and disgust. Women compete to marry a multimillionaire. Is that your final shred of dignity? The so-called multimillionaire in question was one Rick Rockwell, a.k.a. Richard Balky. I'm starting to get recognized now. That's good. I went to McDonald's today. They got their senior citizens working there. I keep getting waited on by these Floyd the Barber clones. You want fries? A failed stand-up comedian turned motivational speaker whose quote-unquote millions was allegedly through real estate investments. His job in the show was simply to take notes as 50 poor souls from across the country vied for Rockwell's attention without actually seeing or getting to know the guy. This was done, of course, through that one true form of democracy a beauty pageant. Now, unlike me, most of these women have not had the benefit of coming up through the pageant system. I believe most of the contestants in that show worked their way up to Swank's centerfold from phone ads and jugs. That's right. Everything from evening gowns to swimsuits to a mind-numbing Q&A was set to determine the marital fate of two people who probably just wanted to be on TV just to be on TV. One of those people turned out to be one Miss Darva Conger, a then 34-year-old emergency room nurse and supposed veteran of the 1991 Gulf War while in the Air Force. Now, I am told here that you are a Gulf War veteran. Conger then drifted back to that Iraqi sand dune where a friendly landmine severed her self-esteem neurons. But we'll get to that part in a minute. Conger and Rockwell tied the knot near the end of the show with marriage vows that not even your average Hallmark Valentine's Day card would touch with a 10-foot pole, including Conger promising to Rockwell, If you feel that I am the perfect woman for you and you choose me to be your bride, I'll be your friend, your lover, and your partner throughout whatever life has to offer us. To which Rockwell replied, We hear it quiet, we panic. A million things go through the back of our minds. None of them good. As an estimated 23 million people stared dumbstruck at the sight of two total strangers getting hitched, in some bizarre way, some people hoped that there would be a happily ever after for the two of them. 
Of course, this is the Fox network we're talking about. For things to end normally on a Fox show, especially back then, would be like having Thanksgiving dinner without the cranberry sauce. It just didn't feel right. Fortunately for the sake of schadenfreude, the gods of misfortune delivered. It turned out that America's most famous groom would also become America's most famous goon, as it was revealed that thanks to a lack of background checking, that Rockwell actually got a restraining order from an ex-girlfriend a few years earlier. I'm here to tell you tonight that at no time have I ever struck any of my girlfriends ever for any reason. Yes? A man who married a total stranger in front of millions had a restraining order put out on him from another woman. That alone should have been a red flag right there. Other flags with shades of red include disputes that Rockwell even did his motivational speeches at specific companies that were advertised on the show. The specific companies deny Rockwell ever working with them. There was also a claim that, when he was a comedian, Rockwell also opened for Jay Leno. <laughs> Come on, one fire at a time, please! Anyway, Leno's people also deny that Rockwell ever worked with him. At the same time that came to light, Conger's status as a Gulf War veteran was put under scrutiny, when it was revealed that Conger had not actually set foot in Iraq, but rather she was stationed at a military base in the Middle West instead of the Middle East, specifically suburban Illinois. When asked to comment about it, Conger said in an interview with a TV program Inside Edition, quote, I was on active duty. Anyone who was on active duty at the time of the war is considered a Gulf War veteran. End quote. There are reasons that I wish I could get into as to why I feel that statement is a giant middle finger to all of our troops who have actually and actively fought in battles. But this show is about television. Honesty and content forbids me to do that. Ultimately, because of these allegations on both sides, the two of them agreed to get the wedding annulled. And despite the fact that millions of people tuned in to the train wreck anyway, any chances of Fox turning the program into an annual Valentine's Day event was immediately crossed off the bridal registry. Many years later, Conger would reflect on what happened on one of those Where Are They Now shows that would pop up from time to time on basic cable. Yes, I realize it was called Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire? That was not my goal. I didn't want to marry anyone. I guess I was kind of looking, looking and thinking, you know, we don't know each other. This is a television show. What we did was really crazy. We need to undo it. I did get the sense that maybe he thought this was serious. So as soon as I possibly could, I did you know, tell him as gently and as kindly as I could, and he was upset. We did not um, really get along too well, and, and that's unfortunate. I, I don't wish him harm or just, you know, it was tough, though. I think neither one of us were at our best at that point in time. Clearly, she regretted doing the show as much as we regretted watching it, as much as Fox might have regretted putting it on. But then they realized, they were Fox, and they would continue to pump out various date exploitation shows over the next few decades. All thanks to our deputy patron saint who wound up getting the show on in the first place. But, to his credit, at least he redeemed himself by greenlighting American Idol a few years later. Thus, the scales were balanced once again. But despite Darnell's rebound, it's never going to change the fact that who wants to marry a multimillionaire will more than likely go down in history as the single worst dating or relationship show that we've seen around here. And considering how many years of television that there is to sit through, hopefully we won't find something that's even worse than this. Love stinks, and these eight shows proves it. 
Like we said, this is not a final list, nor is it definitive. We more than likely let stuff out, not because they didn't fit our standards, but because this was all we could think of as we were putting the episode together. With that said, we turn to you, the listeners, to let us know if we forgot anything. And if we did, please let us know on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. And when you do, please be sure that the shows in question aired within North America only. Take it, Tina. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, no one. Next time on Telehell, we take a little sidetrack to set up an episode that will be happening two weeks from when this episode drops. Because in order to understand why we'll be covering this particular subject, we're going to need to embark on a little history lesson first. ABC produces the movie of the week. Until then... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>